Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Please open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to be picking up where we left off in verse 16. You know, we've come as far as 16. And really from this point through all the way through chapter uh, 3, verse 19, Paul's going to unify or unite the entire world under sin. And I know that seems strange to some. You know, most people say, well, why is he uniting us under, you know, our banner of salvation, Jesus Christ? And he will. But first, he wants everyone to understand where we are and our need for a Savior. If I could ask you to please turn just to chapter 3. Hold your finger in chapter 1, but just turn to chapter 3 and look at verse 19 for a moment. And this will sort of draw us in and set the tone on that. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, clearly we know we're not under the law. That was, you know, settled in Acts chapter 15 and, six, 15 and 16 by the Jerusalem Council that way. And it says, in all, notice that, all, circle that in your Bibles, it's very important, all the world may become, what? Guilty before God. You see, that's, that's Paul's aim here. I mean, this is a letter that's being sent to Rome. He's from Corinth, and he's basically making the claim that all have sinned. And he begins in chapter 1 focusing on the unrighteousness, right? For those unrighteous, you might say. And in chapter 2, he's going to turn his focus more to the self-righteous, right? But he's doing this because it's important that all of humanity realize that we are sinners before God, right? He wants us to understand that we need to be present in understanding what justification is going to do in our lives. As, as we're going to pick up today in verse 16 and 17, one of the most uh, probably well-known passages in the Bible, uh, for most, I would say, you know, God is not only the just, but he's also the justifier. And it's interesting, you know, you go back in early tradition in our law schools, one of the first books, or should I say a required course in our law schools, I know we have some folks that have gone through law school here, but earlier on in our tradition, I, I think we've gotten far away from it, obviously, today. But Romans, as a required course, was studied because of the logical and effective case that Paul makes to all of humanity. It's laid out before us in that way. And I'm, I, I know the Holy Spirit clearly did this in Paul's life. It was inspiration through the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I'm sure Paul was very you know, aware of what God was saying as he's writing these things down. But the coherency, the logic, the simplicity of how he you know, appeals to all of humanity, unifying everyone into this common thread of sin, and therefore pointing us to one that is greater, that can redeem us from our sin. There's nothing else like it. And it's a shame some of the law schools still don't study this because we would find out, I think our courtrooms would be vastly different today, wouldn't it? If we look at all of guilty, but we have a justifier. And that justifier can only be the just one, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray and we'll begin this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you are just and a justifier. We thank you that you've given us this letter as we've been, Lord, just going line by line through your word as you had done when you were physically manifested here on earth, Lord. We thank you for teaching us on how to study the word. We thank you that, God, you've entered us into this. Lord, thank you that we don't have to be uncertain. Thank you that 
we can turn around and open your word and know exactly where we stand. We can have assurance of salvation. Lord, you've given us so many gifts, a privilege, Lord, that you use unqualified, Lord, sometimes even disqualified men and women to further your gospel. That your truth, as you write through all this book, Lord, of this first chapter, you're just constantly reminding me in the Greek, Lord, it's all in the passive tense. Almost all of it, Lord. You're telling us it's nothing we could have done, but it was you that always did the work. Thank you, Jesus, for that. We have no way to ever repay you, nor do you want us to. You just want us to believe and then to live out our faith. God, thank you. We, we ask you for the strength to do that. We ask you for the filling of your Holy Spirit to be bold. And Lord, we pray even right now that we would settle our hearts and minds and we'd hear what your Spirit has to say. Teach us here this morning, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed, amen. All right. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Again, quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. That's what we see there in that latter part. This is our next major, if I can say it this way, theological premise that Paul's going to be introducing. Do you remember the first one we kind of went through? And that was on the nature of Christ. It was the hypostatic union. We talked about that in the first portion of uh, really up to chapter six, or sorry, verse 16 that way. We looked at the nature of Christ, his divinity and his humanity, 100% of both. It wasn't some type of equation that changes up or down that way, right? We didn't see that. We're, we're going to be reading about justification by faith. That's what we just read here. And, and God, as that just and justifier, it's like the song we sang this morning. What did we sing? We're justified, just as if we've never done anything wrong. Just think about that for a moment. If we were, if we were in the Hebrew, I would say selah, right? What does that mean? Just meditate. Think about it, right? Think about it for a moment. I like that. I mean, what a beautiful expression of grace God has given us here. It's perfect grace. God, who is just, righteously looks away from your sin, my sin. That, that's what we read here. He, he must look away because we're great people? No. Hardly. No. He looks away because of one, the just one. Jesus, who atoned and removed our sins, and he imputed his righteousness. It was his righteousness that had to get imputed to us so that when he would look on us, it's his righteousness through our faith. Just think about that for a minute. His righteousness through our faith, through our belief. It's only through this righteousness that we're reading here that God says he accepts us. It's no other way. It can't be any other way. It's mutually exclusive. There are no other ways. It's only through the righteous that God accepts humans. This is the term that we refer to. Again, thinking of a court case as we would present the evidence, as Paul is presenting evidence here. He would say, this is justification. When Martin Luther, many of you know this, read this, it wrecked him. He began to think differently about what he understood as his walk in the faith. 
because he didn't understand faith. He thought it was works. He was thought, well, boy, I lived a good life. I've done good things. I'm a monk. Lord, if you allow this as he's making his way up the steps, you know, if you allow me to get there, then, then I'll, I'll dedicate my life unto you. What could we ever bring to God? I'll tell you what we can bring to God according to the scripture. The only thing that we can really bring to God, and that's our sin. We possess nothing else righteous inside of us that would allow us to come to God to pay that spiritual transaction that took place on the cross at Calvary. There's nothing. We have nothing that we can give God. If we could, then why would we need Jesus Christ to go to Calvary and to be crucified and to be resurrected and to redeem us from our sin? If we internally possess that quality or capability to do that, they're mutually exclusive. That's what the word teaches us here. Another definition that we're going to talk a little bit about, and, I, and I've just used it a couple times, to impute. If I ask you, what does impute mean? How many people think they know what the word impute means? Well, raise your hand if you think you understand what that word impute means from a biblical perspective and how it's being used in the Greek. Okay, good. A few. A few. What's it mean? It means to ascribe, okay, or to attribute something to someone. If you're taking notes, to ascribe or to attribute something to someone. When someone says we took Christ's love and it was imputed, or Christ's righteousness, better said, it was imputed to us, we're saying that some, we're basically saying someone, Jesus, in this case, obviously took his righteousness and he ascribed or attributed that to you and I. When we place our faith in Christ, God ascribes his perfect righteousness or, you know, attributes, if you'd like that better of Christ to our account so that we become, and I'm going to use this word, Ephesians 4 uses this word, perfect. Wait a minute, pastor, are you saying we're perfect in Christ? In Christ. If you're looking for that, go to Ephesians 4 and you can read more about that. That it says that we gather together. What, what, well, Let's, let's pause here. Let's, let's turn to Ephesians 4. I can see enough sort of looks. I think it's, it's worthy. We've gone to this passage a few times when we looked at why do we meet as a church. If you want to look at oh, verse 11 in chapter 4. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Notice that he distinguishes between the two. Those that teach the word aren't necessarily pastors. Do you have a love for the flock? Is your heart knit to the men and women that God brings in through those doors? Do you love them and are you willing to die for them? That's a pastor. That's an under shepherd. If that's not you, you should go work at a seminary. They need the help and get some good teachers there. But that's not a shepherd. For the equipping, this is what we gather. We're not to forsake the gathering of the brethren, as Hebrews tells us, but, but for what? For the equipping, that's what we're doing here this morning. You're all being equipped of the saints. That's you and I, the hagios, right in the Greek, for the pleasure that you have every day. No, your Bible is a different translation? No. Okay. For the what? For the work of the ministry. That's our focus. That's our aim. That's our aim as disciples of Christ for the work of the ministry. And that, that comes out differently in everyone. Some of that work in the ministry is, has nothing to do with this physical building. 
That happens outside of this building in your jobs, in your uh, homes, in, in wherever God takes you and sends you, in, in your marriages, with your children. But for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, that's the building up, right? You're building up of the body, that's you and I, the body of Christ. Till we all come into the unity what, what's that unity that speaks about that we're to come into? Of faith. We're reading verses 16 and 17 right now. Faith. The unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. To a, what's that word there? Circle it in your Bible. What's it say? Perfect. Is God grammatically challenged? No. How could we ever be perfect? We couldn't in ourselves because even though we're saved, don't we continue to sin? Yes, but have we not received the nature of Christ, which the first Adam, we were born into a nature of sin, original sin, Genesis chapter 3, but we were redeemed through Christ and we were given a new nature in Christ that when God looks upon us, no longer sees our old nature because that nature's gone, man. Paul's going to write about that in chapter 8 and 11 of Romans. He's going to talk about that. He's going to say, the waging of the flesh, the things that he doesn't even want to do. He says, that's not me. No, Paul's not schizophrenic. You read that, you're thinking, Paul, what do you mean? When we get there, we'll, we'll exegete that. He's not schizophrenic. He's being very deliberate in what he's saying. He's saying, not only the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. He's saying, it's not me doing them. It's the waging of the flesh inside of you, but I live in the spirit, and I walk in the spirit of God, and I know I have victory over sin, and I know that Christ, when he looks at me, he sees no sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus, his son, in us. It's everything to understand the identity of Christ and who we are in that because that forms our identity. And we have such a biblically illiterate generation that people are walking around and don't understand who they are in Christ. And this is foundational. To a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children doing what? Being tossed to and fro, carried with every wind of doctrine. That means that you read something, I get questions, you read whatever website, go wherever you go, and you start to look at these things, and we start to see people nitpick doctrines, but they take them out of context. And he's saying, no. He says, no. He says, you're not going to be able to be deceived by that any longer as you sit under the word. You'll be able to test and know what is true and right and good. You can turn back with me to Romans. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Now you know how Paul could write that in Corinth, which, oh, by the way, he wrote Romans while he was in Corinth. Just think about that for a minute. He made him who knew no sin to be what? Sin. That we could become, or that we might become the righteousness of God. Not only is Christ's righteousness imputed to us through faith, but our sin is accounted to Christ. Now, he was without sin, clearly, but, but this is how Christ paid our sin debt to God, because it needed to be paid. Think of it as an accounting term. If you have accounting, you have uh, 
you have one side of the spreadsheet, you know, you have things going out, things coming in, or things coming in, things going out on the right side. You have sin that we've, you know, accumulated past, present, and future through our whole lives. And when you sum total that, it comes out to a number. None of us could pay for that. That's why he said in the Greek, teleo, telestai, he used a Greek term to say it's paid in full. It's finished in accounting term. Because he wanted everybody to understand in that column, the number never went away. It's been removed low. It's not that we satisfied it. We couldn't. Christ did. And not only that, when God looks upon you and I now as sons and daughters of the living God, he no longer sees that sin. But not does he not just see that sin, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. One-third of the Trinity in us. Think about that. Think about that for a minute when you start to think, man, I'm not measuring up. You know, can I do anything good for the kingdom? Man, I, I don't have a, a pure motive in my entire body or heart. Guess what, friends? It ain't about you. Who's it about? Christ in you. Is there not a greater gift or an example of perfect grace than that? And I'll tell you right now, and I look at you with my eyes without my cheaters on, I can't, rec I can't reconcile that mentally. I understand it. I can cheat it. I can share it. But to the nth of my, degree of my mind and my heart, my brain has to shut off and my heart has to take over because I can't process it. That I have a God that loves me so much, that loves you so much, that he would give his only begotten son, that he would take the sin of the world, past, present, and future, for those that even reject him until they place their faith and trust in him, that he did it for all, in other words, and that we take on his righteousness. We take on his nature, and he no longer sees us as we really ought to be seen. How much more if we would see each other that way? How much more if we would look at each other's eyes that way and encourage and build up and love and truly unconditional love that way? You see, Christ had no sin in himself. But a good term that we use is he bore our sin as he suffered on the cross. You see, he suffered the just penalty for what we deserved because there had to be a payment. This is why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ as no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's our anthem, friends. That's your anthem. That's my anthem. And by having the righteousness of Christ imputed us, we can, we can be seen by God as sinless, just as Jesus is sinless. Now, again, I want to be careful. I'm not saying um, that we're perfect that way. We're perfect in Christ, but of ourselves, we're, we have no perfection that way within us. It's his, and it's his righteousness. Are, are you all with me on that? I want to be really clear in how I'm saying that. Now, in verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
This, this right here reveals Paul's heart. The, there's no room for embarrassment of the gospel centered on a, a crucified Jewish savior, savior that way. He says, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Underline that, for everyone who believes. You won't get into problems with doctrine if you underline the words of, of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. Everyone who believes. This is why Paul isn't ashamed of a gospel center, centered on the crucified Savior. He knows that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And he also tells us something here. It has what? Power. Power. Let's make sure we biblically handle this. Certainly, we don't give it power. You know, sometimes you'll, you might hear someone that's a good speaker, and they can handle the word well, and they get up there, and, 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 and you, you know the people I'm talking, and they, can, they just got a lot of finesse. They're all over the platform, and they're, you know, you know, they're just really, you know, entertaining that way. And you look at people like that, and, and, and you wonder, okay, where, what am I being drawn to? The attractiveness of that individual and the way that they're presenting it, or is it the power of the gospel that does the work? Well, it's the power of the gospel we hear. We, it's, it has power. The, the way I, I was sort of praying about it is that we stop, when we acknowledge that, we, we stop holding back the power of the gospel because we begin to present it effectively in an apologetic way. When we actually present the gospel, we're allowing the word to speak for itself. It takes all of the, doesn't it take all of the, um, the weight and the stress and the pressure and the whole, I hope I get it right when I'm witnessing to someone? That's, that's for the Lord to add unto the kingdom. Our job is just to lovingly present truth without compromise. We see that here. A scholar by the name of Morris once said, the gospel is not advice to people, suggesting that they lift themselves up. It's not a get better in 21-day program, okay? It is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but it is that is the power that's God's, and God brings the power through the word. You guys with me on that? Greece might have had its philosophy, right? We go back and we can look at Athens and Greece. Rome had its power, Warren Wearsby said. Despite all their power, the Romans, like all men, were powerless to make themselves righteous before God. Warren Wearsby, the pastor's pastor. The gospel's, the gospel's power to salvation comes to who? Just some? Just a few? To everyone who believes. God won't withhold salvation from anyone who will believe. And that's the only thing he's ever asked us to do is to believe. And when we believe, we find grace. And through grace, we find faith. It's a domino, but it always begins with belief. But your beliefs are only good as what you place them in. Your faith is only good as what you place it in. If you place your beliefs and your faith in you or me, you're going to be sorely, you know, sorely disappointed. But if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you never will. He's the ancient of days. He doesn't change that way. 
Believing is the only requirement we see in all of Scripture that you have in front of you. He then says, if you look in your Bibles, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. This, this isn't speaking of prominence here, right? He's speaking of a pattern or order. Think about that, the way the gospel was spread. It was demonstrated by both the ministry of Jesus and even Paul. He would go into a city, and where would he go first? Where's the first place that Paul or Jesus would go into generally when he went into a city often? To the Jewish temple. He went to the Jews, and he would teach in the synagogue. And he would go synagogue to synagogue. And then what happened? Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. He would open the word of God, and he would do the very thing you and I are doing here right now. Think about that for a minute. 2,000 years ago, this is what Christ said. He could have come. He had the Torah. He had the law. He had the Old Testament. He had the compilation of all the prophets, the minor and major. He could have come in and said, you have all that. Let me give you something that's different, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you an attractive church. I'm going to show you a seeker-sensitive movement. I'm going to show you something that's going to tickle your ears to get you super excited. No. He didn't try to get the world to, to do what? To, 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 sorry, the church to conform to the world, did he? He wanted the world to be transformed to Christ. That as they would come in, that their hearts would be wrecked and changed. And, and how did he do that? The same way we do it today. It's what Calvary Chapel's built on. The teaching of the word of God, line by line and verse by verse. That's not Pastor Chuck Smith's idea. That was Jesus Christ. That's what he did when he came to earth. We all can say we love Calvary Chapel, but we love Jesus. And that's why we're here reading his word. That's the way it was done. Go back and exegete in the, you know, the scriptures. It was always done that. Even the prophets. They would be the mouthpieces to speak the word of God, to draw them back to what God had already told them, where they had erred or got off. We test everything in the light of Scripture, don't we? When we get a word of knowledge and somebody comes up, we don't go, hey, brother, I got a word of knowledge. You know, we're cautious about that, aren't we? Why? Because what does the Bible say I have to do? If somebody brings a word of knowledge for it, we write it down. Absolutely. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but we write it down to do what? To test it, because if it be not true, what happens? What are we to do according to the word of God? We're to declare that person a false prophet. That's why you don't see a long line, man, of charismania, of people going up here, I got a word. For, not that we don't get words, we do. But I got a word for you, and every, you know, everybody's getting next thing you know, and they're being influenced by this or that. We don't see that in Calvary Chapel, do we? We don't see that in the word of God, do we? But we do see a movement where God uses the Holy Spirit to manifest gifts that are needed in the believer today. But it's not charismatic. It's beautiful. It's all done with decency and in order. And it doesn't contradict anything we see in Scripture. We got to worry about the charismania is what we got to worry about, the emotionalism. That's not what we want. But if somebody comes forward and has a word of knowledge and they give a good word, we write it down. If it be true, we say, oh, praise the Lord that be of God. We test everything in the light of Scripture. Jesus taught us these things. For the Jew first, also for the Greek. 
Look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. We're told here that the gospel of God reveals the righteousness of God. That's what the gospel of God does. The gospel of God reveals the righteousness of God. That's what we can see. The word revealed here, circle it in your Bibles. This is in the passive tense in the Greek. Very important. What this says is that God does it. It's not something you and I reach in and touch that. This is in the passive tense. It's a righteousness that we can only have by faith, but God does the work. It's not you and I that do it. I mean, this is also fulfilled prophecy, as I mentioned earlier, because it was a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. The revelation of God's righteousness comes to those with faith. If you allow me, I'll read Habakkuk 2.4. It says, behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. The just, what is that? The, the justified ones shall live by faith. It, it's, in, it's essential to understand exactly what the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel or what that means. It's a righteousness that's given to the sinner, you and me, who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Again, this points to a loving, forgiving, compassionate, grace-filled God, not a God who's out to get humanity. Why do I say that? Because there are many people walking around doing this. Even Christians, you know, they're, God's going to get me. No, no. Your imagination's going to get you. No, no. William Barclay, scholar, explains the meaning of this Greek word, dikeo or Dakayo, if you prefer that pronunciation. It means I justify. And it's from the root of the Dakayon, which means righteousness. You see, we see this in this passage, righteous, justification, justify, righteous. We only see this two times in all of, or excuse me, we only see this 40 times in all of Scripture together, these two words combined like this. And whenever you see a Greek word with the end of U, double O, or O as it's pronounced, it always means to treat, account, or to reckon a person as something. This is part of the context of exegeting in the Greek. When you see that, you take that with that, that uh, suffix and the ending, and it gives you the context for what it's speaking about. Some of you know Spanish or Italian or other language. You understand prefix. You understand conjugations, suffixes. You understand this. It's the same thing in the Greek. The O does the thing, same thing. It tells you it's treating, it's accounting, or it's reckoning to a person or something. So look back in your, your word here. If God justifies a sinner, it doesn't mean that he finds a reason to prove that he was right. That's not what the word is saying here. Far from it, actually. It doesn't even mean at this point that he makes the, the sinner a good man. That, that's sanctification. That's not salvation. What it does mean is God treats the sinner. Again, remember, treat, account, or reckon when they double O at the end. As if he's never been a sinner at all. That's what we learn in the context of the Greek. That is, though he's never been a sinner at all. This faith or trust in Jesus becomes the basis for life, right? For those that are justified. In other words, those who are declared righteous. As we read again, the just shall live by faith. But they're, but they're not only saved by faith, there's an important other element here. Look in your word again. What else does it say? As we read, the just shall live by faith. So we're not only saved by faith, but we're to live by faith. 
And, and not only that, but what's it say? From faith to faith. Do you see that in your word? From faith to faith. The idea behind this phrase, if, if I could give you another translation, maybe a more common uh, use of vernacular today, by faith from beginning to end. Does that, does that make more sense? From faith to faith. From faith from beginning to end in the way we live. From beginning to end that way. Or from first to last, you might say. So kind of pulling this back together before we go on to verse 18, we read that, that we are justified, forgiven, and redeemed as believers, right? Those who place their faith in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord are saved, verse 16 as we read, from the judgment facing the human race. But what is that? And why am I talking about the judgment? Because Paul is now going to spend the next passage or two going through and describing this wrath of God. So let's look at verse 18 as we now begin to see what's poured out for those that choose not to be justified by the just one, because there's a consequence to sin, and God wants us to understand that. So look at verse 18, and we'll look through verse 23 on this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because they because what may be known of God is manifest in them, talking about an innate attribute that God gives us. For God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, in his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Just think about that for a minute. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changing or exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God into the image, icon, or icon in the Greek, made like the corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. There was a lot there in those passages. Let's go through and let's talk a little bit about it. Morris also notes, unless there's something to be saved from, there's no point in talking about salvation, right? There's no point in talking about salvation. This idea that we need to be saved from something, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be in here. So what is, what is it? For the wrath of God, you can look back at verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, it says. So this is important. This isn't the enemy. Sometimes people try to take these things and they attribute them to the enemy. No, this is a wrath from God. Just as we read in Revelation chapter 6, that there will be a wrath of God poured out during the great tribulation. That's not the enemy pouring that out. That's God Almighty to do what? As a righteous judge, to judge the sin because of the rejection of the Savior. So again, we see this word here, and the reason I bring that up is because this word wrath or this idea and this revelation, this revealing, that word revealed, is apocalypsos, right? Or apocalypsis. It's the same word we see in the book of Revelation. It's a revealing, right? The word, a revealing or an unveiling, I could say. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against the human race, and the human race deserves the wrath of God. Amen? Does the human wrath not deserve the wrath of God? Again, I want you to see it in the Greek. This is in the passive. This is not something we do. We're not extremists. We don't carry this out. We're not, you know, 
um, individuals that believe that somehow our God is telling us to be extremists and to bring things in the kingdom of God forward by doing certain things on earth now. God doesn't teach that in his word. We also don't ascribe to cults like Islam that, that try to tell people that they need to be the one to usher in the Mahdi, right? The, the one that's going to come, their version of what a savior is. That, that's not what our Bible teaches us. This is in the passive tense. You don't have, and I don't have anything to do with it. It's God that does this work. And it's God who brings this wrath. But what is the wrath of God as you look in your word again? Again, I think sometimes we can struggle as humans with this idea, the wrath of God, because it, it, we relate our understanding of wrath, and we might think of human anger or, or maybe a similar emotion like that. And, and human anger can be manipulated or can be motivated by selfish ambition, right? Or, or personal reasons or even revenge. We have that capacity in us, don't we? We have that capacity because of sin. But the wrath of God is completely righteous. He's with no sin. There is no, you know, evil or wickedness or perversion of true righteousness the way it is in you and I. You see, it's mutually exclusive. God can't love good unless he does what? He hates evil. God can't do good or love good if he, unless he hates evil. They're mutually exclusive. Now, he doesn't hate the sinner. He hates the sin. And he's told us to behave the same way. We're not to hate the one that's sinning that way and say, well, I no. We're to love on them, but we're to give them truth and never to compromise that. Somehow win attention or affection from that individual or, or even allegiance. So yes, righteousness of God is real, but the wrath of God is also revealed, right? We see it both ways. Now, Paul's going to demonstrate, demonstrate excuse me, the absolute necessity here of the good news of salvation keeping us you, me, and God's righteousness. But he's also going to demonstrate for those that are without God's righteousness, they will experience God's wrath. This is real. We need to talk about it. I know it's not popular. I know in a lot of the churches you may visit, or you know, if you're visiting today, you may not have heard this before. I understand that. Because people don't want to offend. People are so worried about hurting. It's, it's, it's not done. This is love. God is telling you, you don't, no one has to have God's wrath. We can turn to God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and receive him. Again, it's in the passive tense, nothing we have to do. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But look at verse 18 here. What, what it's saying is the human race is guilty before God because it's a demonstration of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 18 specifically says ungodliness. This refers to man's offense against God. Unrighteousness refers to the sin of man against man. What do we see in that? It's, it should sound familiar to us from the Decalogue. When we look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, is it any different? When we look at the Decalogue that was given to Moses, the first how many? Four had to do with what? Our relationship with the vertical, with God. The, the, 
the righteousness we're to have with God or the godliness, so to speak. And then the other six were to do what? To focus on the others focused, the unrighteousness referring to some sins against man. And we've also been reading in Leviticus that it says that when we sin against a brother, we say, what in actuality are we doing? We're also sinning against God. It says who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Mankind does, in fact, suppress the truth of God. That's a fact. And we need to deal with that. We need to look at that. We need not to run from that. We need to acknowledge that and see it for what it is. Every truth revealed to man by God has been disregarded, and most often it's because of deliberate disobedience. There's a lost and dying world. Many who have not made a profession of faith, but many who choose not to make a profession of faith. Now, we're going to see why. That's a good question, right? You're asking some of, well, why? Why are they not doing this? You know, what's the reason? Oh, I'm, I'm sort of glad you asked because look in verses 19 and 21 in your Bible here. We'll kind of skip between the two. Look at 19. It says, because. Look at verse 21. Because. Paul's going to give us the reason. He's, remember, he's positioning a logical argument here, a case. We, we can't forget this in this letter. He's, he's positioning this here. And he wants us to see it's because and because, right? Look at verse 19. He tells us, because we may be known of God, sorry, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. What is that declaring? What is he saying? He's saying there's an innate knowledge in every human of God. That's what's declared in your Bible. And he, God, has shown it to man. Now, Paul tells us how we know of his existence. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even in his eternal power and God, it, so that they are without excuse. Now, I know that seems like a paradoxical statement, right? When you look at that, I mean, he's telling us his invisible attributes can clearly be seen. That's a paradoxical statement when you look at it, right? But God is showing us something here. He's talking about his eternal power and divine nature through creation by the things that are made. Now, this word made here, we see, this is only used two times in the whole New Testament. It's an interesting word. He's given it to us to explain a general revelation that is obvious both in creation, within the mind and hearts of man. That's what he's saying here. This is not something that you just have to reason. He's given us, in a way, this measure of faith in our hearts, and he's told us that all of creation, everything we see around us, testifies to that. That's why I struggle with evolution. Because when men try to, and look, it's, it's, it's going a little, praise God. I think mo most researchers, most uh those in higher, you know, the academy, higher education. And, and I would even say in the high school level, when we look at those teaching evolutionary type classes or propaganda, excuse the term, but I mean it, propaganda, a philosophy of man, when you begin to see this being unfolded, generally look at what we've been given discernment. It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, some of us. Look at what the 
reason or rationale is behind it, the motive, if I can say it that way. It's generally to disregard or discredit God. It's not a desire to understand better how the universe works. I mean, in all other areas, we explain and explore the law of thermodynamics, right? The second law. But somehow, when we get to evolution, we turn off all logic and common sense and say, well, you know that pond scum when it was hit by lightning? Something happened different there because everything else in the world is dying and slowing down. Everything, the earth, the rotation, go and study it. Everything. Look at the salt content in the ocean. The saline content increases year after year. You can go to Noah's website. We can see it. It's there. Every year, it's saltier. And yet, if it was millions of years old, we would be walking on what? You, some, some friends just went to the, to the, uh, the ocean recently. Can, can I, you didn't walk on a pile of salt, did you? No. You went in the ocean if it wasn't too cold for your toesies, right? Right? What do we, but but, but where, why does logic get shut off? Why does scientific evidence get shut off when it no longer applies to a philosophy? Because it's suppressing the truth is what God said it would happen. And that's what he's telling us here. That's why I, that's why I say there's no such thing as a true atheist. No such thing. And you could say that too, and I'll, I'll explain to you why. It's a lie from the pit of hell, first of all. But I'll, but I'll explain to you. So be an atheist means to what? And if you're going to use the Greek term, use it correctly. If we're going to use an English term, we're going to use it correctly. Put our grammar hats on. Put our, our vocabulary where it's on. So to use the word means to what? To know, right? So to be an atheist is to say, I know, Gnostic, right? I conosco. I know. So if an atheist is saying, I know, what are they saying I know? I know there is no God. That's what they're declaring, right? No. Look, I, I understand they are very passionate individuals. They definitely want to discredit God in anything they can do because they have made themselves a God, hence the humanist movement of today. Nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. You can read your Bible and we can read about it. It's been happening in Israel for thousands and thousands of years, 5,000 years to be specific. But when you look at atheism, to know means that they've explored every aspect of this universe. Paul talks about what? There's three heavens, right? The atmosphere, well, the firmament, the clouds, everything was at the atmosphere. And then above that, the third heaven, where God dwells, right? And Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father that way. Okay. That means that they have, are declaring by using that word that they have examined every inch of the universe. And they can concretely come back and go, you know what? I've been there and there's no God. It's a lie from the pit of hell. They cannot say that. They can't say that. So to use that term is ignorant because they really don't know what they're saying. Not only that, but they really don't know what they believe and what they don't believe. What they do know is they don't want accountability. What they do know is they don't want to be put under the authority of God as a master because, as our boy Frankie Sinatra said, they're going to do it their way, right? I said the word atheist. I meant agnostic. I keep saying the word atheist. I, you, you guys are tracking with me. Gnostic to know, you know, not to know, putting an A in front of it, obviously negating what it means, agnostic. That's what I meant to say. Forgive me. What about this word agnostic? I, I don't know too many people that really want to use that word. Um, it means ignorant. 
Again, gnosko means to what? Know. When you put the prefix of a, it means I don't know, right? And in the Latin, it actually means ignoramus. So like when somebody walks around and goes, I'm, I'm an agnostic, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. Come on, let's sit down. Let's open our Bible. Let's talk about anything. I'm like, anything. I'm like, I'll show you how to make pizza. What would you like to know? There doesn't have to be a general ignorance to anything. What would you like to know? You know, we can laugh about it, but it is sad because they walk around, and they, but they don't realize what they're saying. No one wants to be ignorant. But they can. God gives them the ability because it says in here, we read that they could become what? Fools in verse 22. So let's step back for a minute. With, with all the DNA and the genome project and everything that we've seen with the coder, right? You look at the genome, right? And you look at the digital record within the genome you know, project and the DNA and how complex it is. For something to be that complex in intelligent design, you have to have a master coder. Anybody who's worked in software technology, anybody who's, you know, I worked for a technology company at one time. I could sit down, maybe write a little bit of code. My code, if I just wrote gibberish, didn't do anything. It just would debug and it would look at me and go, ah, ah, ah. But if I actually wrote intelligent code using an intelligent design and I ran it and compiled it and then I hit play, right? It would carry out an action. Yet, evolution wants us to assume, and this is what I love. I mean, you got to remember, in fairness to Darwin, he didn't understand all any of this. We didn't have the technology back then, but science clearly, I mean, literally, it, you have to be blind, literally blind to scientific data and understanding to not accept creationism compared to evolution, because we have the technology to look in the cell and we can see that everything that was suggested or prophesied about creation, that as we went to the microbiology of the cell, according to evolution, remember, everything has to do what? Everything would get less complex. That's what evolution would suggest in some ways, that when you would go to the individual cell, you would find that the complexity of the origin happened at time of the lightning strike or the big bang. And then from there, you would see the remnants of that, a fossil, all the things that would come after that. However, when we go into a, uh, a cell and we use a, you know, any technology form, whether it's, you know, a microscope, a, you know, a powered, any, we now see even in the cell, what we thought of how the cell would move, we see fine motors. There's actually little motors that are within even single cell organisms. These cells, there's these motors and they, they change and they go. And we even see cells that have the ability to reproduce and change and become different things. But once they become those things, that's what they are. Right? Squeamish cell, different. I mean, some of you understand what I'm talking about. Go back and read this. There is so much evidence. So what we saw is the exact opposite of what evolution thought, that the more complex you get, the more intelligent the design is which points to an intelligent creator. I'm thinking in the new part of the year, we ought to have a creation conference. Sometimes in the March timeframe, have a weekend, have some speakers come in and go through just creation. And just, I mean, this is so silly. Let's debunk it once and for all and get as many of our friends that can come to this and sit down and go, okay, we're going to ask you to think and put your big boys and big girl caps on. 
We're going to use logic. We're going to use science. But God's word has already said all of this. This is nothing new under the sun for us as Christians. Even there's some Christians that believe in evolution. That's confusing. I mean, I, where do you draw the line where you start to believe and where you stop believing? Because if you're willing to compromise and you're going to take things like that, you've, you've effectively taken the Bible and you're, you're sort of taking and you're making chocolate mashed potatoes, which I'm not a big fan of. Humanity can't accuse God of hiding himself and therefore excusing the immorality. We're, we're almost out of time, but we need to just finish through this passage of 23. Look, look at verse 21. Humanity knows God. That's what we see. The problem is they refuse to glorify him as God. Therefore, mankind is without excuse, right? Instead of glorifying God, humanity has dumped or dumbed down the idea of him into a comfortable term, allowing for corrupt and disrespectful hearts. And this is deliberate. What are they doing? They're making themselves as a God with the same pride that Lucifer had when he denied God after being in his presence. How did he deny him? Because he says, I will be the most high. Five times he declared that in Isaiah 14, and he's standing in the very throne room of God when he does it. He's looking right at him, and he says, I, a created being, will be as an eternal being. That is the dumbest and most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And yet, he's looking at it, he sees it, and he utters it. And what, uh, what caused him to do that? The perversion of his heart, which was built on pride. Do you, do you see where this all comes from? Do you see where it stems from? Even, even in the atheist, the unbeliever, which again doesn't really exist, the agnostic, it, it, it's pride. That's what the equation that Romans chapter 1 is teaching us. It's pride. If we solve the formula, that's what we're, we're getting to. That's why it's imperative we compare our own ideas with God's. Otherwise, we end up with a mixed reality compared to what God's revealed in his word. People have amazing imaginations. But left to their own vices, they're going to be scared of the boogeyman in every little corner. Not based on truth, not based on the word, not based on reality. What ends up happening if you play this out? Well, fast forward, where are we today? You're guilty of worshiping a self-made God that suits your own understanding. That's who you end up making God in your life. A compromised, imaginary friend. A genie in a bottle. Verse 21, nor were they thankful. This is one of the I don't like to use the word signs, but clearly the days we're living. Man's simple ungratefulness against God is shocking. Spurgeon has a great quote I, I want to read with you and share with you this morning. I cannot say anything much worse of a man that he is not thankful to those who have been his benefactors. And when you say that he is not thankful to God, you have said about the worst thing you can say of any human being. So that's it. Verse 22, of course, just like Lucifer and Satan, they professed to be wise, and yet they became fools. Our rejection of God's general revelation doesn't make us smarter or better. We, we don't see that here. Instead, it makes it futile in their thoughts. 
right? And makes our foolish hearts darkened. We become fools. Do you know what that word here in the Greek is saying? When we don't look in this and we don't see it for what it is, it says that they become morons. Morons. They're thick or dense because they can't see. They don't want to see. And yet God has given them all of creation around to testify to his invisible, that he's clearly made visible attributes to us, to all those that are willing to see. And in verse 23, we see this word icon. Think of the word icon, the way it's used in the English today. When you think of an icon, what is it? An image. That's what we see here in verse 23, this Greek word icon. It's frightening to think that they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an icon or icon, the image of their own imagination. That's what happens. He's telling us that's what happens. The reality is once a man rejects the truth of God in Jesus, he will be deceived. That's what we're told here. The futility of thinking, the corruption of the heart, and the foolishness must be seen, because those are the three things he said. Futility, he saw corruption and foolishness. They must be seen as an example of God's wrath. That God's wrath for those who reject what he's revealing, his son, giving them over. Remember, he says he's going to give them over to debased minds. Part of his judgment against humanity is allowing them to suffer the damage of sin of their own sin that way. He eventually gives them over to their own will, to their own imagination, to their own thoughts. And what's troubling me the most out of all of this, I understand the unbeliever. They may be spiritually blind, just as Saul's Tarsus was, motivated by zeal, but incorrectly motivated. He believed he was right. He was murdering Christians. But he was dead wrong, and Jesus Christ made sure he knew it. And he'd already been working on him by pricking his heart. He had no contentment in his heart. He was, he was a guy that was up and down. You look at Saul of Tarsus, he was this. You see people like that in your lives, you wonder what's causing. It's an internal struggle in the individual. There's some things that aren't correctly understood in their doctrine of theology, in their, in their understanding of who Jesus Christ is, God is. Now, we're not talking about hormonal and bad. You know, we understand there's other causes medically. I'm not talking about that. His, his judgment that way is allowing us to suffer the damage of sinful actions. Friends, we have to understand there's consequences to sin. And with that, we, we have to remember as we, we close this section, and next week we'll move into verses 24 through 32. I'd hope to get that far with us today, but thank you, Jesus, that he justified you and justified me. Amen? that we can stand and know who we are in Christ. And as I was saying, the thing that disappoints me the most isn't, it's not the exterior discussion argument from the atheist or the agnostic, the ignoramus. It's by definition, I expect that. It's from the church. It's from the believer that divides that is constantly looking to create division. I, you know, I subscribe to this. I subscribe. Look, are we not all one body in Christ? Has God not, just as we read in Ephesians, called us to unity? And yet, there are people that are taking man's philosophies and they're bringing them into the church. They're bringing them into the word, like Calvinism, like Arminianism, like all the different things we see. And what are they doing in hopes? Are they trying to unify? 
or are they using it as a creative tool of division? I'm not saying, look, you can, we don't need to divide over that. There may be people here that, that are reformed. And then, then, you know, okay, that, that's what you believe. Praise, I'm glad you're under the word and you're submitting on the word. There may be people here that say, oh, we don't, we're sensationists. We don't believe in the guests. Okay, I'm glad you're here. You know, we're, we're you know, this is not one of those major split offs. You know, you deny the son of God, we have a problem. You try to deny who Jesus is and his divinity, we have a problem. You, divide, you, know, you deny the humanity of God, we have a, that's, a, that's a big deal. But let's not divide over these, these auxiliary type things because the enemy can use that to split and bring apart. When God and Jesus Christ design, as we just had read and he's reading here, he's unifying us. Even in our sin, he's unifying us. And then he tells us in Ephesians, he unifies us in what? Our work and the equipping of the saints, the work of the ministry. God is a God of unity. If you have anything in you that's causing you to divide or to tear apart, you need to question your heart. I need to question my heart. Where is that coming from? Within the body I'm talking about. Clearly, for those that aren't saved, we understand there's questions that will be raised. You guys with me? Amen? Let's stand and pray. We went over our time, so we won't have a closing song here this morning. I'm trying to keep us to a 45-minute window. Uh, since we're going to two services, we need to get, I need to be pretty. I said we, and then I'm like, who are we kidding? I need to, um, so pray for me. Because <laughs> I, I, you know, I'd love to go a couple hours with us all. There's so much God has to say, and I love his word, and I want to get as much of it into your hearts as we have time because we are living in the last days and we have to deal with a battle that's going on and the enemy never takes a break and he gnaws and he tacks and he tries to divide and we need to stand in unity. We need to stand on the word of God. It is our foundation. It is our understanding and the heart of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is what we receive when we accept him as Lord and Savior. So be glad in it. Father God, we thank you, Lord. As you've spoken here today, Jesus, through your word, God, we know that your gospel has power as we read. There's power in your name, Lord. There's power in your word. God, I pray you'd protect every one of us here from this foolishness that you described that can happen because of your wrath. God, we certainly don't want to enter wrath. And Lord, we know as born-again believers, we don't need to. For you said very clearly in 1 Thessalonians, Lord, 5, that the church is not given unto wrath. Thank you, Jesus, for that. That becomes our hope and our understanding for not only the prophetic future and the harpazo or the rapture, but even for the days ahead. The gates of hell will not prevail against your church, Jesus. And we're going to walk in that victory. And we're not going to be beaten down and deceived by the enemy who wants to whisper in our ears and tell us that we're foolish or we haven't arrived. You have just sown this into our hearts. You have just sealed this in our hearts, that we are seen by your Father, and by you, Jesus, our Father, as well, that the righteousness of God be manifest in us. And because of that righteousness, God, oh, Jesus, we're seen as you, perfect by your Father, by our Father. God, what a perfect gift of grace. What a perfect expression of love. Jesus, I only, there are no words to say how thankful we are as we've learned here today exactly what you did before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, Lord. 
But thank you, Jesus. We bring you our hearts. We bring you our minds. We bring you our souls. It all belongs to you, Jesus Christ. And we would pray here collectively by our amen, it would signify it. Though God, we ask for you to just have all of us. And we're going to pray this again. We're going to signify this by our we We ask this in your name, Jesus Christ. And we ask you to baptize us in the Holy Spirit that we could do these things, God. Be our teacher. Be our everything, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We pray all this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Signifying it. So be it. God bless you all. Have a great day.